The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Hey there, and welcome to Big Universe. I'm Jim Lefter. I'll be your host for today. I'm a spiritual journeyman and media consultant. Now, normally, this is where I would introduce my amazing co-host, Sarah Bowen, the author of Sacred Sendoffs. But Sarah's off for this episode. She just got me. I'm going to go solo today, but I'm happy to be with you. Um, I hope you can put up with me today. All right, so let's get straight to our interview. Becky Vollmer is a speaker, yoga teacher, and creator of You Are Not Stuck, a movement that empowers people to pursue the lives they most deeply desire. She guides a global community of social media that is several hundred thousand strong, teaches online courses about empowerment and choice, and leads sold-out programs that combine movement, breathwork, and self-exploration and action, action planning. She does this at yoga and wellness centers across the country. She's a former journalist and also is a leading voice in the sobriety and recovery community. Becky's the author of the book, You Are Not Stuck, How Soul-Guided Choices Transform Fear into Freedom. Welcome to Big Universe, Becky. Oh, Jim, thank you so much for having me. So happy to be here. It's so great to have you on. Um, you know, we were we were talking. I was trying to get rolling earlier, and my tongue would not work. So hopefully, hopefully, I have worked that out, and the uh, water has uh, worked its magic there. <laughs> so let's talk about your book. Why did you decide to write? You are not stuck. Hmm, that's a that's a great question, and it takes me back many many years. It's uh, about ten years ago. I I made the choice to leave corporate America after a long career in. Uh, public relations and strategic communications. And I will say that the last several years of my of my time there, I would describe it as angsty. I was a, a new mom. I had two little girls. I was uh, you know fast track, headed to um, headed to partner at the firm, working an awful lot and really struggling to make life balance. And I decided after a whole lot of hand-wringing, um, years of it actually, I decided the best thing for me to do would be to simply leave with no plan B. Wow, that's pretty. that's a pretty brave uh, thing to do. You know, at the time, I felt like it was probably the bravest thing I ever did or ever could do. Um, in retrospect, I've got a different feeling about it, but at the time, that it just felt so monumental. And it felt like that just the first time that I was doing something that was right for my soul, as opposed to doing what was right for my ego or my ambition or my pocketbook. And so after I left and settled into my new life and reflected on just how, just how stuck I really had been, how low I really had felt, I decided I wanted to do everything in my power to help anybody else from feeling that way, even for a second. And so 
somehow empowerment just sort of became my mantra, my calling card. And I began to weave it into all of my yoga practices, uh, both for myself and the ones that I was teaching. Uh, and I started to, to focus a lot on the power of choices. Hmm. And, you know, just a thought became a platform, became a blog, became a global community, became a book. And here we are. Awesome. Awesome. So what does the word stuck mean to you? What, what does that mean? Hmm. You know, I think what it means to me and what it may mean to you or anybody else could be a little bit different. I think some people experience it as more of a, a mental block, like sort of a, a puzzle they can't piece together or a problem they just can't solve. Um, I, I felt stuck very much in my body. That's where it manifested uh, for me. Hmm. It was like, it was the breath I couldn't take. It was feeling like my whole being was just boxed into a corner and there was nothing I could do to get out. And so, um, you know, some of us feel it as a mental block. Some of us feel it as uh, a real heavy emotional um, burden to bear. And uh, I do think those of us who are more in tune with our bodies, I mean, we feel it when we can't breathe. We can't sleep. We can't poop. We've got a constant headache. So right. yeah. How, how does it show up for you when you feel it? It's a mental thing for me. Um, I feel like uh, I need to puzzle things out. You know, I, I need to figure out what the next, what the next move is. And so it, it's definitely a mental thing because I, I live in my brain a lot. So uh, that's, that's how it manifests for me. And then, you know, the brain, once I figure it out, I can, I go into action, but I, I know that, uh, you know, sometimes you need to take action before you can figure it out. Yeah. I, I think the important question to ask is what's the right action. And that's really the, the crux of, of this book. It's, it's how do we discern what action is not just smart or what action is not just strategic, but what action is really aligned with our with our souls, with our deeper desires, because so often when we make choices from, you know, that brain space, our, our thinking mind, um, we get into a lot of trouble up there. Uh, I know I do anyway, because up in that space, we're constantly being bombarded with the messages of what we think we should do or what right. society thinks we should do. But when we can drop down into the deeper space, into our soul space, what I call our stardust selves, that's when we get uh, a little more intimate with our values, our values as they've evolved over time and our priorities as we want them to be today. And we can use different yardsticks to measure uh, success. And I put success in air quotes because that's going to look different for each of us. So we've defined a bit what stuck is. What's the opposite of stuck? Hmm. For me, it's freedom. That's what it is for me today. And I suspect in many ways, that's what it's been for me all along this last decade as I've, I've kind of, I've personally been navigating the, the stuck journey, not just on the job front, but in a marriage that had disintegrated, 
and, mm. you know, kind of making that tough choice to, you know, when do you finally call it? Right. Um, and also, you know, it, my own personal journey includes um, addiction and recovery. Mm -hmm. And so I'm coming up on nine years sober. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. But that's also, that's a choice that was rooted ultimately in freedom. So wanting to be free from alcohol and all of the, you know, all of the chains that go into that, wanting to be free from a union in which I know I wasn't, I wasn't loved in the way I wanted to be loved. Mm -hmm. um, and in a, on the job front, again, more chains right? The, the chains that we experience of what we should do, what we think we should do, what society thinks we should do. It's a very countercultural thing to walk away from what society tells us we should want and we should value and we should pursue in order to walk toward whatever it is that's going to make us feel free. That's different for each of us. Definitely. Definitely. So you in the book you go you detail a nine-step process for getting out of stuck and i thought we'd dive into that obviously you know we're just going to be touching on things because the book goes into the details about mm -hmm. it but i thought it was really important to you know sort of do an outline of 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 that sort of thing and the first thing that you mentioned is um seeing the ways in which feeling stuck impacts your day-to-day -day life and you mentioned a, a great quote um, that I think is appropriate here from Tian Dayton, uh, normal is anything you're used to. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean to you? And what, you know, how do you determine what feelings, feeling stuck, how it in, impacts your day-to-day -day life? So th there's a lot of, there's a lot that I want to respond to in that, um, <clears throat> It's not yeah, I just, just kind of threw it all in there, didn't I? One big, <laughs> one big question. <laughs> no, but it's it's such a rich it's a rich question with lots of different angles for answers. Um, I think I'll start with, you know, I had my own experience with feeling stuck, and I, I think I could maybe make assumptions that I could extrapolate that to other people, but I didn't necessarily think that would be fair. So uh, back in 2014. Um, now I take that back back in 2015, um, I put a survey out in the field because I wanted to better understand why we as people will so often just stay in places that we know are, you know, we, we feel stuck They're They're dangerous. They're harming us. They're not fulfilling us, um, uh, when we could ostensibly make another choice. So. I put a survey out in the field trying to understand people's attitudes around how, what does stuck look like and feel like for them. Mm -hmm. Also, how do they feel about feeling stuck? And then what do they do when they feel stuck? And the answers, they were really illuminating because what I learned is that stuck is completely universal. First of all, it crosses, uh, I mean, it, across uh, all demographics, race, religion, geography, you name it, everybody feels stuck at one point or another. And then the, there were some certain pain points that jumped out before others. Um, first was jobs, next was relationships, 
And then uh, third was uh, our behaviors and our, our, our patterns. And then I also learned a lot about the actions people take and the feelings that they have in terms of feeling sad and depressed and then you know feeling uh, like they just want to cry deciding to procrastinate deciding to withdraw and often you know going to choose um, unhealthy behaviors over healthy behaviors so in the first step i really wanted to give people the opportunity to take that survey just so they could kind of contextualize their own situation and see where their own responses fit in with a more global look at being stuck. So the, the survey is very simple. It's eight questions. It's in the book. It's actually on my website too. Folks can take it. And just the questions themselves are not right or wrong answers, but just pondering the questions themselves. Uh, it's my hope that those are provocative enough to get people better understanding the areas in which they're feeling stuck, how that makes them feel inside, and then what they're doing in response to it. Interesting. So the, the second step is that you talk about articulating clearly what it is you don't want, which you refer to as your South Star instead of your North Star, which I think is really interesting, an interesting way to put that. Um, what Talk about that a little bit, knowing what you don't want. Yeah, I think so many people, when they're feeling that sense of stuckness, it, it might be sort of a general heaviness that they haven't articulated in the past. And there there might be a sense of, you know, I don't know what I want, but I know it's not this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so to actually put language to it, to label it, what specifically about this situation isn't working for you? What specifically is you know, holding you back, holding you down, making you feel so miserable. Because once we, once we can identify that, that South star, so to speak, it becomes easier then to look into the third step, which is what do I want instead? Mm -hmm. And that's a real sticking point for a lot of people. They'll say, I, I really don't know what I want to be different, what I want in the future. I just know that right now, I'm miserable. So to mm -hmm. be able to take that information and use it as a as a springboard to get more intimate, more familiar with what we do want. And that's the third step. And that's where um, I encourage people to do a very deep dive into values. And I know, you know, right there, a lot of people are like, oh God, not values again. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think we get real tired of, of constantly um, assessing our values because I think many of us are under the mistaken impression that that's a one and done kind of thing. Like, oh, I can, I know what my values are. They've been the same since I've been, since I've been in high school and I'm just carrying them on into adulthood forgetting to pause and recognize that we've evolved an awful lot since then. Yes, and definitely. so should our values. So, you know, I, I, I can think about my own experience and Jim, I'm, I'm sure it's, you know, you could go through a similar reflection too. When we're born into our family of origin, we're born to, to people, they've got their own values 
that will stretch all the way back to their family of origin, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Already you're dealing with a set of values that might be three or four decades old. Uh, And then as we age, we, you know, maybe we go off to school. um, Maybe you go to a, a, you name it. I went to a a private Catholic, all girls high school. And as you can imagine, that community had its own set of values. I would say that's, that's probably (laughs) likely. Yes. I could understand that. Yeah. So I internalized a lot of those and you know, later on, I, I went into the workforce and, uh, you know, as a young newspaper journalist, that's a profession that has its own set of values. And I internalized all of those. And then later on, I, I got married and you know, my husband's family, he, he brought forward all of their values, but it wasn't until, you know, then I, I got to be about 35 and all of a sudden I had a little baby. <laughs> yeah, and babies will do that to you. Yeah. Yeah. They'll really turn things upside down, won't they? Yes. And so all of the, you know, the values that I had as a, you know, young, ambitious, professional, uh, suburban white woman who was really looking to prove myself and, you know, in many ways, stick it to the patriarchy all of those values kind of softened a little bit. And here I just wanted to be, I wanted to be warm and nurturing and present in a way that I hadn't necessarily felt previously. And so now here I am approaching 50. Um, I mentioned sobriety. That's a, that's a path that has its own set of values. And my point in sharing all of this is that if I was still trying to operate right now, entering my, my, my fifth decade, the same way that I was acting in my 20s, I would be completely out of alignment with myself. And so it's really a useful practice to take stock and see how our values have shifted over time so that we can pinpoint what's really important to us right now. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, what, what happens earlier in our lives before we've had life experiences, you know, certain life experiences entirely changes your perspective and, and what you, you understand to value. So I, I totally, I totally get that. And that, that really vibes with me. So facing fears, we don't want to do that. Mm. No, fears are ugly, aren't they? <laughs> yes, they are. There's no fun in that. So no. what how do you what do you suggest we approach with with facing fears? Hmm. I like to bring a lot of curiosity to it. A oh, lot that's of a great idea. That's a great word. Yeah, if we can look at our fears with, you know, with some compassion and and more observation and less judgment about uh, you know, oh, you shouldn't be afraid of that. It, it, for me to tell myself, hey, you shouldn't be afraid of heights doesn't make me any less afraid of heights. It just makes me feel bad about being afraid of heights. Right. So if we can approach, um, well, first we've got to dig down. We've kind of got to excavate our fears because the ones that we might articulate on the surface, those aren't usually the- The, the big re- ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ones. We got to get down to the gnarly ones. And I, I sort of liken it to, you know, picking up a rock that's that's on the ground and you pick up that rock and all of a sudden underneath it, all of a sudden here are the, the creepy crawlies and the dirt and the mud. And 
it's our first instinct to just slam that rock back down onto the ground because we don't want to mess with the creepy crawlies. No, we don't. But that's where that is such fertile soil for understanding ourselves better and for being able to move ahead. So when we can identify a fear, maybe trace it back to where it may have come from, what's been feeding it over time. And, you know, with our using perhaps a little bit of intellect, start to dismantle that fear or at least put it into some context. And it's always very helpful for me to know, Jim, that uh, I'm not the only one who feels fear. Each one of us every day, all the time, whether we're aware of it or not, we are operating from some, some place of fear until, until we get to what I talk about in step five, which is, you know, recognizing let's it's answering the question, like, who do you think you are? Right. Well, who I think I am now. And again, this is part of my evolution, who I think I am now. I am just a divine badass. <laughs> oh, I like that. Divine badass. And the divine part is really the key part of that phrase. There's a there's an excellent description. And as I would like to be able to say this comes from someone wise like you know, Rumi or the like. But as best as I can trace this back, it comes from a dude on Twitter who went by the handle Porkbeard. <laughs> I think that's the first quote we've gotten by Porkbeard. <laughs> And what Porkbeard said is, you are a meat-coated skeleton made of stardust. What do you have to be scared of? And man, the first time I, I heard that, it resonated so deeply. Hmm. You are a meat-coated skeleton made of stardust. What do you have to be scared of? Hmm. And so that's where the idea of divine badassery comes in. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, this I pull from my, my yoga practice and my yoga uh, teaching. This is, you know, that's the path that I've been on for more than 20 years. If I think that I am just a walking, talking uh, revenue generator who is beholden to uh, my bosses, my parents, my spouse, society. Um, if I'm just here to, you know, to pay taxes and die, I'm going to carry a lot of fear because oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be deathly afraid of screwing up in somebody's mm -hmm. eyes. And that's how I used to live. I would wake up every morning and just think, you know, as I tried to balance being a spouse and a mother and a leader at work and, um, you know, a good friend and give whatever scant leftover time there was to myself, I would wake up every morning and think, who am I going to disappoint today? Oh, wow. But when I can really be sitting in the seat of my divine badassery, and I know that the stardust that's in me is the same stardust I see in you and in everybody else out there, I can elevate my consciousness in a way that's going to make me less beholden to my ego-based fears 
and more willing to be aligned with my soul. Hmm. How did you travel from, you know, your Catholic background to yoga, the yoga mindset? I mean, what was that transition like for you? And, and you know, what were the steps that sort of happened? I don't need, you don't need to give me specific steps or anything like that, but, <laughs> you know, but I'm, I'm just curious how you transitioned to that. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's been largely a lifelong practice for me. I, you know, I'm, I'm a kid um, raised in St. Louis, which is an incredibly Catholic town, you know, you sort of like a Starbucks on every corner in other cities in St. Louis. It's like, it's a, you know, a different Catholic school, different parish on every corner. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting a Catholic church in St. Louis. And so even though I was always surrounded by it, I always felt a sense of questioning. Mm -hmm. And part of that questioning stemmed from the teachings of the church. And I don't say this to, to bash the church at all. It just didn't, I, I say this because it didn't resonate with me, but it was the teachings of the church that said the divine spirit is outside of us. It's over there. It's up there. Right. Right. And I always sort of walked around thinking like, well, what am I? Am I? Am I chopped liver? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then yeah. I, I got into, when I started practicing yoga um, in my mid twenties, and then, you know, got a taste of the spiritual side of a yoga practice after I could touch my toes finally. Um, Which I still can't do. So, you know, <laughs> stay with it. It might come. Um, I started to, to have the sense that the teaching that each one of us are made up each one of us are divine. Each one of us aren't just a reflection of God, but each one of us is God. That was like, oh, that's what I've been waiting for. Because something inside me inherently felt that. But I just wasn't raised with the teachings that reinforce that. So when I found a when I found a practice that emphasized the divine nature of each one of us, uh, I was hooked. I was hooked forever, and yeah. and that really did begin to change the way I thought about everything. Mm, yeah, it does. It's a transformational thing when you when you discover other philosophies out there that just shift your perceptions. And that's going back to the values thing earlier. You know what do what are your values and how you transition over time to that? So I'm I'm you, I'm making a tangent here, but you you talk about Sanskrit words that were important to you, and uh, Preya and Shreya, Preya, what's good and easy, and Shreya, what's beneficial in the long run. Um, these are these are just wonderful terms. That comes from your your yoga mindset, your yoga, yoga practice, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. I remember when uh, when I was first introduced to those terms, probably, uh, gosh, it, it's coming up on 20 years now, when I did my first yoga teacher training. And I was a very heavy drinker then. I was somebody... And, and in many ways, I still am. I mean, you put a bowl of ice cream in front of me and I, I come running. <laughs> Excuse me. I have no comment on that personally. I, I certainly don't do that. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I resonated 
very much with the idea of always chasing that that instant gratification it was useful to me it was soothing to me to know two things one that it wasn't just me <laughs> other people like instant gratification too but two that there's an alternative there's an alternative approach that takes more of that long view. Mm -hmm. So Preya being that, that quick hit, um, you know, do what's fast and easy, uh, you know, what's, what's immediately satisfying. But Shreya, that gives me, that gives me hope. That gives me something intentional to stand on hmm. discipline has not always been um, my strength <laughs> and but when i think of using discipline or leaning into discipline as a form of self-care and self-honoring and i think of it in the context of shreya that mm. long-term benefit, um, that gives me something to stand on. No, yeah, yeah. So back to the process, um, identifying the trade-offs, consequences, and boundaries. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, as we as we deal with these th these issues and these fears and these the stuckness. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, this is one of my favorite pieces to talk about when we, when we come out of, you know, after we've, we've done the things about <clears throat> seeing where we are that we don't want to be and looking at where we want to be instead and kind of dismantling those fears that hold us back and then beginning to lean into our, our, our inner stardust. Then we come to a place where we've got to make a choice. You know, this is the place where I've got to choose what needs to change. And that, that can be absolutely terrifying, you know, like some of us, it's like, oh, I've got to make a big Thelma and Louise type leap, right? I've got to drive right off the cliff. Terrifying. Sometimes though, and equally terrifying, we recognize we've got to make a small shift, but maybe it's a commitment to healing a part of us that's still wounded, or it, we have to make a commitment to changing a behavior that is, um, you know, so destructive to our very soul. Anytime we make change, anytime we make change, we can't help but feel the fear of the unknown. And so in step seven, I encourage people to really go in with their eyes open to try to understand, to try to know a little bit of the unknown. And uh, this is the this is the part of me that um, I'm the child of two insurance agents. <laughs> Interesting. Uh huh. So always kind of uh, looking to to mitigate risk, right? So I want to know if I do this, what are the likely consequences of that? What consequences am I willing to take on? What trade offs am I willing to make? what aren't going to work, what, what won't work for me, what am I not willing to do, and then try to assess the boundaries that will need to be put in place to, to make it all stick. So I'll give you an example. 
when, you know, when I was going to leave the corporate world and I was thinking about consequences and trade-offs, you know, I, I went through and I, I literally took pen to paper and just wrote out a list in several categories. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for me financially? What does this mean for my, uh, future professional prospects? What does this mean for my family? And et cetera, et cetera. You know, what could this mean for my emotional health and well-being? And I would assess, okay, if I make this choice to leave this job, well, in the plus column, I can say I've got more time. Uh, I'm going to have less stress. I'm going to uh, feel a little more free. Well, in the minus column, goodbye six-figure salary, um, you know, goodbye fancy shoes and fancy bags that I used to like to carry, you know, goodbye vacation fund, goodbye 401k. <laughs> right, right. But ultimately being able to look at that list with my eyes wide open, I was able to see I'm okay with not contributing to my 401k for I don't know, an indefinite amount of time. It turned out to be eight years. It was mm -hmm, eight mm -hmm. years before I could put anything back into my retirement. Um, but I would say the balance, uh, it was a good choice. Hmm. It was a good choice. Do you re recommend pen to paper to do this sort of thing? Um, or does it matter? I, I do, but I, I think that's, you know, that's my old, that's the old school in me talking. I love, I love to pick up a pen. I love to feel it scratch across paper. I love being able to scratch things out or, uh, you know, highlight or check. I, I like seeing a messy first draft. I think when we do it, um, on a computer, we're, we're too focused on editing as we go, you know, but that's so true. That's so true. Yeah. But some people may really prefer to do it on a on a tablet or peck something out on their phone. Or so to me, it's less the less the uh, mechanism you use that matters. It's more just literally sitting down and doing the hard work of considering trade offs, consequences, and then again the boundaries that you have to put in place to make it all work. Okay, so creating per a personal playbook for your next moves. What is a playbook to you? What is what exactly is that? Is it a step by step thing? Is it a is it a general, you know, general idea of where you want to go? What what do you mean by that? Yes, <laughs> yes, both. <laughs> right. um, I, this is where we get to into a real individual approach. You know, some people like a uh, a recipe to follow or a blueprint or a checklist. I'm somebody who really likes a PowerPoint presentation. Um, you know, there are a million different ways. Oh man, ways. I couldn't imagine putting together a PowerPoint presentation for myself. <laughs> oh, I've seen it. And, and uh, I, in the, in the online classes that I teach, the, the culminating project of our six-week practice is to deliver a playbook. And I have seen them come in as, you know, pictures of a big uh, cork board, <laughs> that have been, you know, made to look beautiful. I've seen them uh, laminated. I've <laughs> oh, interesting. That's oh neat. yeah, yeah. It's 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 fascinating the the different ways that that people will choose to be, um, you know, not just action oriented, but to be creative too, because this is really your whole personality coming to life. 
But the, the point of a playbook is to be able to take into account where you're coming from, where, you know, really looking back at kind of where you've been, where you are, and then where you want to be. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be this five-year plan. It doesn't have to be a map for the rest of your life. It can be, you know, for the next six months, here's how I want to shift my thinking, my behaviors, my actions, my attitudes in order to get from not just point A to point B, but from A to B and B to C and then C to D and then all the way down, you know, maybe you need to get from O to P and P to Q and Q to R. So the number of steps that you have listed out in your playbook is going to be, um, completely unique, completely dependent on your own personal goal for what it is you want to shift. I see. I see. Interesting. Just for me, I think it's, uh, it's A to Z. <laughs> I want to know, <laughs> I want to know the long run, what I'm going to doing. And then it's, you know, A to A plus one, A to A two, you know, it, it has to be big and it has to be minute at the same time. That's right. I think you've got to have a, you know, a broad enough vision, you know, a broad enough sense of ideally big picture where you want to go. But then, I mean, it's that that's the intention, right? Where you want to go is the intention, but intention without action, that is just wishful thinking. Right. And so there's no, there's no plan that's going to get you Jim, not you or any of us going to get you from A to Z in one big leap. Wouldn't right. that be nice? It would be. <laughs> We've got to do those small incremental steps um, in a consistent direction to get anywhere concrete. Yeah. Yeah. So the last step in the process is integrating practices into your life for peace and grounding it on your journey. Now, obviously, you you're heavily influenced by um, yoga, and so what are some of the things? What are some of the practices you recommend? Yeah, that's a good question, and I I I think it's no accident that this is actually that the last chapter in the book. Yes, yes. Let's the... dive into that. Let's dive into that because you have about seven or eight of those that you that you discuss in there so let's dive into that yeah i and it's no accident that this is the it's by far the longest chapter in the book because this is all about taking care of ourselves in this journey you know the the liminal space where we sit you know after we've it, this is uh, my friend heather plett calls that space that liminal space the that that moment where the trapeze artist has let go of one bar and doesn't yet know if they can catch the other bar. Mm, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. So if that doesn't make you want to pee your pants, right? That's a that's <laughs> that's a big scary time, and that's the time that we need to treat ourselves so kindly. So with practices that are nourishing, practices that are grounding, and so this is I I do offer several of them here. I offer seven. Um, and again, it is largely pulled from my own yoga practice, but also from some of the other practices that have helped me. So mm -hmm. the seven are movement and breath, mind, number two, mindfulness and meditation, 
The third one is all about letting go. And we can talk about that in a little more detail. Next is cultivating emotional intelligence. And I've got a very specific way of, of summing that up. It's being able to answer two questions. First is, how do you feel? Second is, what do you need? Mm -hmm. The fifth step uh, in caring for yourself during the journey is therapy regular therapy. I go every Thursday afternoon, whether I want to or not. But the good thing is that usually I want to, <laughs> because yeah. I've been blessed to have some pretty good therapists on my journey. Yeah, therapy is, I think everybody could use therapy. I, I really do. It, you have to, I think you have to discern who the right therapist is for you, because that that can be very important, because not everybody's a match. But I really think that therapy could be used by just about everybody. I agree. I really do. And and you're right. It, it the the right match is essential. And I think I think we know pretty quickly if 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 it's not the right match and it is absolutely okay to move on and find somebody who's going to be a better fit. Yeah. Yeah. So at, almost as a compliment to therapy or sometimes in place of it the the sixth step that I recommend is journaling. And then the last one is finding comfort and rest. So comfort and uh, comfort and rest is really important. I agree with that. Obviously, um, we have to make sure that we're in tune with ourselves. You know, we need to feel good and and take the time for ourselves. Yeah, you know, productivity culture tells us we've got to go, 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 and really, <coughs> excuse me. We need to stop and stay. And then after journaling, you talk about comfort and rest and how important that is. Why don't you go into that a little bit? Why do we need to take that time? Mm, you know, so often productivity culture tells us that we just need to go, go, go. But if we remember, you know, that old saying we've heard a million times that we are not human doings, we are human beings. And what we really need sometimes is just to stop and stay and breathe and be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I know uh, for those that don't know, uh, uh, she, Becky is very kind to come on with us. She has a sinus infection, <laughs> so I don't want to keep her too much, too much longer, but I, I do want to know um, what's one final piece of advice that you would give our audience as they try to get out of the stuckness? I think the most important thing that I hope that people take from, from this whole book, from every conversation I have with people, what I want to remind them of is something that's very simple, but not easy. It's the idea that we all have choices. We just have to be brave enough to make them. You know, even when we feel like we are choosing between bad and worse, that is still a choice. And if we can, through our choices, practice being the person that we say we are, we will create meaningful change that ultimately leads to that freedom that we talked about. You now it's all about finding 
freedom. And that is my wish for every single one of us. Well, that's wonderful. We really need that. And I think that once we find that freedom, our society will find that freedom much more readily. I sure hope so. Well, Becky, thank you so much for joining me here on Big Universe. It's been such a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me too, Jim. Thank you for letting me cough in your ear for this last hour. And thanks for <laughs> editing that out. <laughs> Absolutely. For more information about Becky Vollmer, check out her website, youarenotstuck.com, and pick up her new book, You Are Not Stuck, How Soul-Guided Choices Transform Fear into Freedom. Thanks, everybody. I'm Jim Lefter. I'll talk with you next time on Big Universe. I'm Laura Worcester, host of the Intuitive Life Podcast. As an intuitive medium and teacher working with the world of spirit, I love to share the peace that comes with the awareness that our departed loved ones are still with us. And I also love to help people explore what it means to live an intuitively led life. Start listening now on mindbodyspirit.fm or wherever you get your podcasts.